Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, even though we're located in Austin, Texas, the hometown of the American Shoreline Podcast, we haven't done a Texas show in a while. And we're due. And we're due. And uh, we are going to have a, a really great conversation today about the coastal bend part of the Texas coast. And so for all of you folks outside of Texas, when you look at the big curve of Texas along the Texas coast, we're talking about that middle curve area called the coastal bend. And we have two great guests today to talk to us about the state of affairs and the state of the coastal environment in the coastal bend area. Ray Allen is the executive director of the Coastal Bend Bays and Estuary Program, one of 28 national estuary programs in the United States. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about what is a national estuary program. Uh, He is joined today by his director of partnerships, Kirsten Stanzel. Uh, and the reason we are interested in doing this show, Tyler, is because they just came out with the update of the Coastal, uh, coastal Bend Bays Plan, the instrument which guides this organization to protect, restore, and enhance the Corpus Christi Bay System region. It's an incredible document, really super well done, I thought. Well, I do too, and it, it reflects just an enormous amount of thinking forethought planning in fact is what you call that and this is going to be critical uh for the future of this region of the texas coast a very cool region of the texas coast that i'm excited to share with our audience they might not know uh exactly what goes on in the coastal bend well and uh, to introduce our audience to this area the coastal uh Bend Bay and Estuary Program's jurisdiction, if we can use that word, or area of coverage, is 12 counties covering 11,500 square miles. And the population in this region of the Texas coast is 572,000, so more than a half a million people. Um, it is a major uh, energy export region of uh of Texas. And so there's a lot to think about for the folks at the Coastal Bend Bay and Estuary Program. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Ray and Kirsten and learning more about what they're doing. Let's dive into it. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at lja.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Ray Allen and Kristen, Kirsten, thank you very much for taking time out of what I know is a busy time of year for you guys. It's spring break season uh, down on the Texas coast. Uh, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. Thanks, Peter. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. 
Well, Ray, I've tried to give a little bit of an overview, and I just for the for the benefit of the audience out there, Ray and I have known each other for I I, I don't know twenty five or thirty years. Back when I was at the Texas General Land Office, and Ray sat on the Coastal Coordination Council uh, that oversaw the implementation of the Texas Coastal Program, the Coastal Management Program. So Ray and I go back a ways. Uh, but Ray, would you introduce our audience to yourself as the executive director of the Coastal Bend Bay and Estuaries Program and introduce our audience, if you would, to what uh, the organization is all about? Uh, happy to do so. You know, uh, uh, we've spent a long time here on, on the Texas coast. Uh, you know, I moved uh, in the program, uh, the Coastal Bend area, for those of you who might have maps, uh, uh, you know, Corpus Christi is where our offices are located, and kind of, it's central to the program area here along the coast. And uh, so we we work both north and south of the Corpus Christi area. Uh, just a lot going on here. Uh, you know, it's a it's an area that has a lot of industrial development, a lot of tourism, uh, commercial, recreational fishing. It's a it's a real classic coastal community here. And just just a lot of great natural resources in the area, and and our goal it really is to uh, protect what we have and try to restore some of what we've lost and and to maintain it into the future. Well, uh, it is a dynamic area, and I'm excited to learn more about how uh, we're planning to do that. Uh, but first, uh, Kirsten, tell us a little bit about you and your. Uh, pathway to becoming the director of partnerships here. Yeah, it's it's actually an interesting story because it relates closely to the um, the plan that was developed. I um, I've actually been in the Coastal Bend region working and, and living there for for um, almost twenty years. Uh, I used to work for the University of Texas Marine Science Institute. Um, I uh, while I was while I was there, I actually took on the role of helping the. The Coastal Bend Bays and Estuaries Program put together their their revised plan. Um, I was contracted out with them to do that, and so that was kind of I'd always been involved with the program through some of their stakeholder groups, um, and and always knew about the great things that they were doing. But that was my first time to really kind of uh, you know get into the details and the weeds a little bit with them about you know what they were they were planning for the next uh, twenty years. And so um, while I was working on that plan. Um, you know, I an opportunity opened up with the program to um, become their director of partnerships and help them focus a lot on um, funding and just leveraging resources to get the you know the most work done that we can. And so um, it was the the planning document that we're going to talk about today that actually kind of led me into my my current role with them. And so now I um, I focus a lot on trying to basically implement what's in the plan um, and finding partners and resources to do that. It's an extraordinarily uh, comprehensive plan dealing with so many projects and programs that the uh, that the Coastal Bend Bay and Estuary Program implements. Uh, but Ray, can we go up to about ten thousand feet here? Introduce our sure. audience to what is the National Estuary Program, and what is the purpose of the Coastal Bend Bay and Estuary Program? Great, yeah. Uh, the EPA, uh, the U.S. Congress, under uh, under the Clean Water Act, established the uh, National Estuary Program. It was an attempt to build on uh, national efforts that had looked at uh, place-based programs. So that's the key word, place-based. Uh, things like uh, the Chesapeake Bay Program and the Great Lakes Initiative. 
and to try to translate these major efforts uh, into, uh, if you will, smaller areas uh, that still involve a lot of local people. It's a place-based, locally driven, stakeholder involved, you know, pick your favorite buzzwords, you know, so that, that really it's it's about engaging the community. And that's, that's really at the heart of the 28 National Estuary Programs, is they are all meant to reflect the goals and objectives of the of the local folks it's uh you know it got the program gets started and i should say our program came along on what epa calls round four of the national estuary programs there was a an initial round in the late 80s uh, round one where congress itself uh, designated a few areas uh, to be included in the national estuary program and then over the years, really the quickly, program, Ray, Ray, can I ask you really quickly, going back to the yeah. 80s and Congress designated, what were some of the originals? Uh, you know, the, in my mind, uh, I, I think probably the Galveston Bay Estuary Program was the closest. Uh, the Puget Sound Program, uh, without referring to note, I, notes, I wouldn't want to guess. No, that's fine. I'm, that. just, I'm curious but, to know yeah. what, what, what got first dibs anyway. That's interesting. So round one, Congress, then yeah. what happened? And then the EPA was authorized and established a protocol for new programs to be nominated. And and, and I'll just take you to uh, the Texas round four, where we uh, uh, the nomination process came up through the uh, Texas government. Uh, Governor Ann Richards had to submit a uh, proposal uh, to EPA uh, that was developed uh, with the help of state agencies, Texas Parks and Wildlife, uh, what was then the Texas Water Commission, which is now the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and, 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 and lots of local people. You had to have local support, local cities, counties, uh, conservation groups. Uh, so it was that nomination package to demonstrate both that there was a local commitment and that there was a national significance to um, our Bay and Estuary system. It wasn't just out in the middle of uh, the wilderness and everything going okay. This is targeted at uh, areas that are seeing development, seeing a lot of usage. In our case, a, a lot of port development. And we'll maybe talk about that later. But, you know, so it's a, a thriving economic role that the Bay plays here in our area. And that helped us get through the nomination packet and get, a, get our program approved. And the key is, uh, by being in that what we call the fourth round, we had lots of other people, lots of other programs to learn from, including right. our friends up at the Galveston Bay Estuary. So, so that's, it wasn't like it wasn't like we started with a blank slate. You know, we had lots of ideas and a lot of a lot of guidance from both EPA and, and the state of Texas to get going. So just following along in this history, Ray, so uh, I guess this would be, what, the mid-90s? The This is, uh, you know, we got the nomination packet submitted in 1993. Uh, later in that year, we got approved, and we really kicked off the program. I was, a, I was not an employee. I was a volunteer, uh, helped write the nomination packet and a lot of other folks. And so we really had our first, you know, meeting to start the planning effort. And, and EPA had a well, well-documented planning protocol. Uh, so we started in 1994, and essentially we had funding to put together a, 
a comprehensive conservation management plan in a four-year window. And is that so, is that the first edition of the Coastal Bend Bays Plan? That, that is. It came out in 1998-1999 time frame. Um, you know, sometimes we hit the four-year window, sometimes we got close. Uh, but that, that was the first version back there, 1999. Ray, and these these plans, and one of the key things about national estuary programs, and you you touched on it in your introduction to the effort, is that these are voluntary cooperative efforts to tend to the bay systems in the region that you are designated to oversee. And in this case, 12 counties, 11,500 square miles, that whole central coast bay system, it's an incredible region of the Texas coast. Um, it, it sounds so big when you put it that way. It does. <laughs> mostly, mostly we just work in the salt water. So. Well, that's true. So, so some of those counties are inland counties in the watershed. And, and, and that reflects that, you know, and, and we've been through a number of these uh, buzzwords, if you will, uh, ecosystem-based planning, watershed-based planning, and on and on. And, and really you have to look at where the, where the people are, where the potential impacts are that are affecting the Bay resources. Got it. So that's, that's why, and politically, and this is, uh, remember I said it was a place-based program. We actually have a, a, in Texas, they have councils of governments, you know, it's, it's, so it's a, it's like a cooperative deal where people in the counties in the same area and cities, and towns, you know, they all work together through this COG, a council of governments, a Coastal yep. Bend Council of Governments. So when we started forming the program here, and we had to look at what the what the program boundary would be. We looked at, uh, obviously, the bay connections, and the bays are all hydraulically connected and biologically connected. Uh, politically, though, you know, you, you want to have a, a community. It's a community-based deal. So what's the community? And here, uh, the easy choice was to go with pre-existing uh, organizations like the Coastal Bend Council of Government. So mm-hmm. that's where we ended up with these counties, I including see. the inland counties, I see. if you will, into the program area. Um, Kirsten, you are the director of partnerships, and I understand was were the lead was the lead on the second edition of the Coastal Bend Bays Plan. As Ray explained, the first one issued in 1998. The second edition seminal plan, seminal plan, the beginning of it all. Uh, the second edition released in December 2020. Tell our listeners, why is the Coastal Bend Bays plan important? What is it for? Well, I think it's a it's a, a very interesting document because, as Ray said, you know, we're, we're charged with, you know, making sure that we're working with our local stakeholders. And so, um, and addressing the issues that they see in the region, coming up with um, project ideas, actions that we can take to actually, you know, address any any issues of concern and and trying to, um, you know, you'll see this as you mentioned before. This is a, it's a big plan with lots of different topics that get covered and and so you know I think it's uh, it's such a, a key document for engaging with those stakeholders. So you know the we continue to do that um, on an annual basis as much as we can, you know, year after year. Um, but you know, it was it was interesting to try to you know take a step back and um, you know we we. We were 20 year, almost 20 years out, uh, you know, from the, the first plan, and it was a, a great opportunity to to sit down with with the stakeholders, some of whom had been involved in the first plan, and some of whom had it, you know, and and to look and see where have we, 
what have we accomplished in the last um, 20 years? Where were we, you know, did some of the same issues still remain? Were there new ones that had come up? And so, you know, that opportunity to open up those discussions and and really sit down together and try to come up with solutions for how to address them. Well, Kirsten, let's let's go into that. Uh, what were some of the issues? I'm, I'm curious to know uh, what you had kind of written on the whiteboard as you started the process of opening up the second edition. What stood out in your mind as, A, wow, we've really done a great job in these areas, and B, you know, we really need to focus on planning in these new areas? Yeah, so there was you know, there was a number of priority issues that came out in the in the early 90s. And again, um, you know, when Ray, Ray was mentioning that, that previous planning process that we had gone through, you know, so um, there was, I think, seven priority issues that were highlighted in the first plan. And those were things like freshwater inflows to the bays and estuaries, um, the conditions of the living resources, loss of wetlands and habitat, um, degradation of water and sediment quality, um, estuarine circulation, bay debris, and then public health issues. But I think, you know, and I think a lot of those, you know, maybe it ne wasn't necessarily the same exact issues um, within there that, that were being addressed, but all those things were still, um, the stakeholders felt like were part of, part of this plan. But there were a number of um, other things that kind of rose to the top. Um, one of them being, of course, climate change was something that hadn't really been addressed in the previous plan. So we, we uh, incorporated that. There was also um, a number of developments within our own organization and our own program that highlighted the need to change things. So one was a um, decline in bird populations and um, the estuary program has actually developed a, an entire um, program within our own organization to address um, some of those issues. And so that wasn't um, you know something that was really stood out in the first plan necessarily but was definitely a highlight um, in the second plan. Ray, if you wouldn't mind here, let's take a let's take a look back at the last 20 years from the beginning uh, and talk about the Coastal Bend Bay Plan 1998 edition uh, and its aftermath. Um, you've been the executive director of the organization now since that period. What were the biggest accomplishments, Ray, over the last 20 years? What are you most proud of that you've done organizationally in this region that you work to improve? Well, there's a couple of areas that I'm especially proud of that the program has accomplished. One is an area of land conservation. Uh, and this is, Kirsten kind of alluded to things evolved over the 20 years, and we've done things that weren't as necessarily highlighted in the original plan, but in the original plan, we had a couple small actions or sentences about protecting existing habitats and, and working with the local land trusts. And, and what we found out was that land trusts in the area weren't all that effective. Some of them disappeared while we were working with them. So the Coastal Bend Bays and Estuaries program itself ended up, uh, when the opportunity presented itself, to start acquiring these uh, uh, areas, uh, both uh, coastal wetlands, uh, adjacent buffer areas, uh, areas in the Nueces River Delta. We own well over 10,000 acres out there. Um, yeah, so we've taken this model of habitat protection through acquisition. And then, of course, if you own it, management is so much easier. Uh, invasive species can be managed. Uh, uh, water flows can be managed. So this is an area that, that really was, you know, contemplated uh, on a smaller scale in the original plan, but we have really 
not just picked that up in the Nueces River Delta, but we are now looking at the, you know, we have these three river systems here, and you know, we're now looking at the Aransas River complex and the in the Mission River area, the, those two flow into Copano Bay, and and recognizing that the lowest cost way to protect habitat is to own it, and not let it get developed. Interesting. And, and, and to do some low cost management and restoration activities, not that they're low cost, but compared to going out and recreating what's been lost. Right. So it's a very it's a very cost effective strategy. Uh, you know, you could. You can buy these almost undevelopable wetland areas, and sometimes they're undevelopable, and sometimes they're not. And, and for much cheaper than you could go, and we've done a lot of building wetlands, and you know that's a very expensive process. And that was an eye-opening adventure for us to do that, and we continue to do it. Uh, but it's just very expensive to try to rebuild what's been lost. Yeah, yeah, well, an, ounce, well, that, an ounce of prevention, right, Ray? Exactly right. You know, uh, it's much cheaper to save what you have than try to fix it later. Uh, I think the other thing that um, that was surprising, uh, or or at least a change from that '98 plan as we evolved over the years, was was our focus on our environmental education program. You know, our our plan is comprehensive, so it isn't just water quality and you know and, and fish, shrimp, and crabs. It's it's more uh, dealing with the community, looking at uh, in, environmental education, you know, uh, assessing you know what the local students and the local teachers knew about the area. Uh, so by owning uh, habitat and owning land, we were able to create uh, what we call the Nueces Delta Preserve. Uh, we were able to find partners to work with for educational activities. And uh, prior to COVID-19, uh, we had thousands of stu uh, school students coming out and visiting us in, in the Nueces River Delta complex. And, and for many of these kids, uh, it would be the first time outside the city into a natural area, you know, no paved sidewalks, you know, nothing nice it's just down the wooded trails and go see nature so yeah that was a that was a great program so as, as kirsten said we actually when we redid the plan uh, the coastal bend base plan we actually came back and and it provided additional emphasis to those programs the bird program you know it's like you know the numbers were terrible in terms of decline of uh, colonial water bird uh, nesting uh, populations. Uh, so we really made that a program in and of itself and and have been able to bring on board other partners and other funding partners to to make that work. And so this uh, these areas where we've expanded our beyond simple habitat restoration efforts has really been a wonderful success. It sounds like it. And I, I, when you talk about land acquisition and uh, an ounce of prevention and education, I'm Kirsten, I'm interested in uh, maybe some of the uh, analytics here, some of the metrics that you might have looked at to start out. What was the population of this region back in the 90s for uh, edition one versus what it is now? Oh gosh, you're testing me. <laughs> a little bit. You can ballpark. I'm like, it. you could. I'm not trying it. to think of the graph that I made for the plan. You know, it's uh, <laughs> it was a lot lower back then than it is now. Oh, I mean, really? I, right? Would you say it's probably 
doubled in the last 20 years? I'm trying to think. I've, uh, yeah, maybe not that much. You know, um, Peter, when I moved to uh, Corpus Christi in 1975 uh, to go to the local university, um, Corpus Christi was about the same size as the city of Austin. Hmm. Wow. And, and, you know, of course, the, you know, up there in Austin where you and Tyler are, you know, it, it just, it just goes on forever now. It does. Corpus indeed. Christi has had pretty flat growth. Uh, the Corpus Christi in the coastal bend area, uh, you know, 1% a year on average, maybe. So it's been a very slow gradual growth. There's been a spurt here and then a decline. Uh, not unlike other parts of Texas, our more rural counties have actually lost population. Wow. Well, it, people have mig migrated into the cities. I think it's uh, the, maybe the population, and I don't have the number either, uh, relatively stable. I think it sounds like overall but there has been incredible development in the region from a uh, waterway and maritime transportation standpoint. And I wondered if we might talk about this a little bit. Um, uh, what our research indicated is at the present time, uh, the Port of Corpus Christi is either the as either is now or will soon be the number one crude oil exporting uh, port in the United States, accounting for more than 50% of the national crude oil exports. Uh, the Corpus Christi ship channel is being deepened to plus 70 feet, I believe, in certain segments. The port is being... Uh, is that right? That's only proposed. No, it hasn't been deepened it hasn't, yet. It hasn't been done yet, but the process is underway. We've got an, an, a, a deepening project underway, and the port is beginning to get equipped for handling what are called very large crude carriers, VLCCs. And these are ships that can carry 2 million barrels of oil. So the great energy state that Texas is, the Port of Corpus Christi is becoming a central export terminal for, for crude oil and for liquefied natural gas. And uh, so, Kirsten, I, the, the question I want to know about is in the partnerships that you have built in the development of the plan, uh, of course, the port is a significant player in the region. Can you talk about the relationship between the Bay and Estuary program and your partnerships with your stakeholders, including the port? Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, yeah. Like you said, that that's a huge issue in our region, and and something that over the last you know five to ten years has definitely um, risen to the you know the the forefront of importance, and and so we have a whole section in the plan, um, you know, about maritime commerce and and dredging is what we call the that that particular section of the plan, and and some people may think that's kind of funny to be in a a base plan. Why would you have that section? But you know, it really revolves all around, um, you know, particularly for the maritime commerce part, you know making sure that what's all this, you know, increased traffic and um, different types of exports that are happening now, you know, that um, we work with our partners closely to make sure that it's done safely and, you know, going to have the least amount of impact on our environment as possible. So, you know, trying to think about the, the issues that are, um, you know, could, could happen, you know, hopefully don't, but, but could potentially happen spills and things like that, you know, that, um, that could impact uh, our, you know, our wildlife, our habitats, um, things like that, our, our people as well, you know. So, um, you know, and then the the dredging part, I think, has been especially interesting because, as you mentioned, there's been, 
you know, some, some efforts are going on for quite a while now to, to dredge the channel deeper, um, to allow in some of these bigger vessels and things. And, um, you know, that I, I do feel like our partners, um, not just the port, but many of our other agency partners and, and things like that are really interested in, in trying to make sure we, we now use that material in a really good way to help um, increase habitat, build habitat back that may have been lost. And, um, you know, the, the, the buzzword is beneficial use of dredge material. And, and you all may talk about that on this. Oh, we <laughs> so, call it BUDM <laughs> around here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we, you know, so anyways, I, I think, you know, the plan really um, provides an opportunity to show that, you know, we don't just forget about that part of our, of the ecosystem, you know, that this is, you know, ships are going to be running in and out of um, up and down the intercoastal waterway and in and out of the, the port, you know, for who knows how long, you know, and, and potentially more and more of them. So we can't, um, you know, just sit back and, and say we're not gonna, you know, try to address those issues. And and you know, I think that by by getting it into the plan like this, it gives us an opportunity again to to get the port as well as other stakeholders to sit down with us and and talk about the future um, and and work on a on a plan together. So let me take you back to the first version of the plan back in the 1990s. Okay. Uh, the port of Corpus Christi, the the uh, authorized depth of the channel was 45 feet from the Gulf of Mexico right to the Inner Harbor. You know, practically downtown Corpus Christi. So a 45-foot deep channel all the way across the bay. In the 1990s, the port was seeking permits to deepen the channel to 54 feet. Mm. And, and Peter, that's the dredging that's going on now. Okay. Uh, so there are there is dredging going on and some deepening. In the 90s, in our coastal bend base plan at that time, uh, the plan called for uh, the beneficial use, and we helped the port develop in their permit a beneficial use plan for as much of that material, this virgin cut dredge material. You know, this is clean, it's not contaminated, you know, it's solid, so it stacks. It is clay, so it isn't like clean beach sand, a lot of it. Most of it is sand, uh, clay, but you could build an awful lot of good habitat with that. And, uh, so we came up with a comprehensive uh, beneficial use plan of their dredge material, and, and that was incorporated into the EIS for what's called the 54-foot deep project. So right now, the Corps of Engineers is, is, uh, has completed or is still working on the first phase, which was to, from offshore out in the Gulf of Mexico, come in to the first segment and cut it down to... 54 feet. And then uh, they've now been funded to complete the second phase, which gets them quite a ways into Corpus Christi Bay, you know, again, from 45 feet down to 54. And then a third phase will take them all the way into the inner harbor. And that's, uh, you're exactly right. That's so these bigger ships can come in and, uh, and, and be fully loaded and not the VLCCs for sure. Cause they need even more water than that. And, I'll talk about that in a minute. But the idea here was it wasn't just deep in the channel so we could get these ships in. We had a channel that was fairly narrow, our, our, our ship channel. And, and so what we not only did it include deepening to 54 feet, we supported the plan to widen the channel to put uh, what's called barge shelves on the sides. And, and that's what allowed for a shallower draft barge traffic, you know, push barges, 
to go in either direction. And the goal there was to get these barges, this barge traffic, which is a lot of the traffic, get that out of the area where the big ships are. You know, one of the neat things about her base system here is it's not rocky. It's, it's a soft bottom. You know, if you lose power, these deep big ships, if they lose power and, and they drift out of the channel, well, they run into a, a mud bank. You're not likely to rupture your tanks or break anything open. Uh, so the real threat was really vessel-to-vessel -vessel collision in the base system. So the idea was to not just make the channel deeper, but to move those barge traffic out of the main channel. And, and that was an important component and one that we supported and, you know, the bay by itself, most of the bay is about nine foot deep at, at natural depth. So it's a very, in other places, we call that a very shallow bay. It's typical for Texas. And and barge traffic only needs, you know, 12 or 14 feet. So, you know, it, you, know you just put a little more gentle slope on and you can move that kind of traffic out of the main channel. So uh, that, was a, that was a major goal. Now, what we're looking at now and of course, in 1999, oil was being imported. You know, those big VLCC ships, yeah. as big as they made them, would transport oil from the Middle East or from wherever, maybe Venezuela or someplace. And they would come in and they would anchor up offshore. And I don't know if they really anchored up, but they just parked out there. And, and smaller tankers would go out and it's called lightering. Oil would be transported transported from the big ships to the smaller ships so they could come into the port and deliver the product uh, to the refining uh, uh, companies here. Uh, so the goal now is, um, and, and you talked earlier about LNG. Uh, when we got our program first started, it became a nonprofit in, in 1999. There was plans here to import LNG. Can you believe that? Right. The companies, there were two or three companies that were trying to get permits or permitting uh, LNG import facilities. Uh, so it would come in in a liquid form and, and be regasified and, and used as, as gas and fed into the system here for the local uh, petrochemical plants and, and inland. Uh, well, most of those people didn't ever get their permits, and, and thank goodness for them, because now we're exporting all of that material. It's like the world has turned upside down. Uh, so where we went from being a major import oil facility, we're now a major export uh, port, uh, both uh, uh, both crude oils and uh, natural gas or, or liquefied natural gas, LNG. And, that, and that's because Corpus Christi and the port of Corpus Christi is very close to the Eagleford Shell uh, oil region in Texas. And so when that happened, and this is all about within, as Kirsten said, in the last 10 years, five or 10 years, Eagerford Shell, uh, all of this fracking that was done, they were able to extract oil from that and a lot of natural gas. And then, of course, the the big hit out in the Permian Basin yeah, in right. West Texas. And so, uh, you know, you got to build pipelines a long way. And well, the first real good-sized port you come to from West Texas is the Port of Corpus Christi. And that's why the emphasis here has been on accommodating that oil and natural gas produced in Texas and, and further west. And so it's like, so now the 
So now instead of VLCCs being offshore and oil being lightered in, we are now having to park VLCCs offshore and take oil out to them in in smaller uh, ships. And as it's like it's like the world is upside down here, and it's it's the new economy, the new oil, the new reality of the oil markets. Well, one thing is for for certain, uh, oil and gas energy has right. a historic. Uh, cultural place in Corpus Christi. I suspect, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know anything about Corpus Christi, except maybe it's got one of the more unique American city names, uh, you might know that it's an oil town. Uh, and uh, I, I have to say that everyone should just hit pause right now and listen to Corpus Christi Bay by Robert Earl Keane. Just to, just to give <laughs> yourself one. a little flavor of uh, the 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 oil that's kind of in the blood, I would say, culturally. I want to ask uh, Kirsten this question because it seems to me like, um, you know, it, it's to some degree uh, you with oil and gas being such a deep part of the community in this region of Texas that uh, inevitably you're going to be working very closely with with these folks and at times there are major concerns you referenced collisions spills uh so on and so forth how cooperative and like down for the cause has uh not only the port but the companies these these oil these energy companies that are making the money how how do they feel about this effort are they enthusiastic are they kind of stubborn uh like are they are are they how do, what's their approach when you when you go out uh, Kirsten and 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 work with these folks what how do they react to you yeah no I think I think most of them are, are usually very eager to talk to us um I think you know that the estuary program has a long record of showing our partnership with industry um and and you know that starts at the port you know and then with the numerous partners that the port works with and and um and so you know I find that it's people want to talk to us about opportunities to work together, you know, and um, looking for ways to make an impact in the community, particularly, you know, the environment and supporting, you know, a number of our different programs. Uh, we've been talking some about about LNG um, export, and I I feel like I should give a big shout out to Chenier because they've supported our our coastal bird program for the last two years with some some major funding, which has been extremely beneficial. Um, you know, so it's great opportunities, but it, it's nice because every year we, um, you know, we sit down with them and, and we have a conversation. Um, you know, they want to know what what are our needs and, and what are, what do we see in the community as far as environmental needs. And and, you know, when we have that those types of discussions um, with a lot of different industry partners. And so, um, you know, I think that that helps. And, and that ongoing communication is so key, not just for from a funding perspective, but just to knowing what's going on. What are they planning um, are they expanding? What's going to change? You know, so I think that's helped us, um, you know, be better prepared for what's going to what's going to come down the road in the future. Do you when in working with these people, um, obviously, ladies and gentlemen, everyone should go check out this plan. There'll be a, obviously a link in the bio and look at all of the, the the vast array of subject matter that's covered in this bad boy. But uh, I am curious if, you know, there's this is there's a strong social human component 
to this plan and do uh when I think of the people, the human beings themselves, I am, you know, they live in this area. They're a part of this environment. I know that, you know, maybe this is a stereotype. This is most certainly a stereotype. Yes. Uh, I, I suspect that a lot of these oil workers like to fish and like, like to be out in the environment. I mean, do you find that they, uh, think of themselves consider themselves identify as coastal citizens in this region coastal bay citizens in this region uh, let, let me address that uh, please do there has been an evolution here in our industrial base uh from the 1990s and earlier we had i, I don't want to call them smaller oil companies or smaller refining companies but we didn't have majors here we didn't have the giant Texaco plants or the big Exxon facilities here. These were uh, uh, one step down, uh, the Valeros, the, the Diamond Shamrocks, the Coastal Refining, uh, Sitco. Um, these are, as you say, these are people who grew up here. Uh, the, the plant managers, a lot of them had spent, you know, 15, 20 years here. All the workers were local. Uh uh, they really, you know, I went to school with these people that went to, yeah. that were now engineers in the plants or, or the chemists in the plants. And so, and I knew them all. And they're, they're as exactly as you say, they're sportsmen. Uh, they all had their little boats to go bay fishing, uh, the bay fishing boats and, and, and their families. And they loved Corpus Christi and they loved the bays and the beaches and the Gulf of Mexico. In the last 15 or so years with the with the Eagleford Shell and the Permian Basin oil, we're now attracting major companies. There's now a Exxon uh, a Sabic uh, plastic plant going in. Uh, there are now international companies located here, both the Pina from uh, wherever they are in Italy or, uh, or Europe and, uh, and some other companies. And there's some Chinese uh, companies here uh, there's a cultural difference. I would tell you the American owned companies come with a culture you know, they grew up with, which they know they have to be an active part of the community. They have to be engaged uh, in the environmental community. They have to be protection, protective of the natural resources and, you know, the public health issues, the community responses, et cetera. Uh, for me, it's been fascinating to see international companies come in where they have a, a different culture. Hmm. And, and so you'll see a company like, and I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it uh, for Kirsten's uh, uh, partnership development, but it's tougher for some of these companies to, to work with um, uh, that they, they don't have a culture of doing that from the countries they come from uh, because of the type of governments they had or, because of the regulations in those places, it's just different. So for me, it's been very fascinating to see how this this uh, effort has grown and these new people coming in. Um, you know, the Exxon folks, before they even picked a location, they were in our offices here wanting to know about the local natural resources, wanting to know about, you know, what concerns they should have about how they're going to build their plant, where their wastewaters were going to go, what the treatment standards ought to be, and so we had all this engagement from from the from day one, or even before day one. That's fabulous. But, but but for some of these plants, it's just not in their culture. 
Now they do hire local people. Obviously, you know, you have investors from, from China or China owned or, or Italy owned facilities. And, and you come in here and upper management comes from those places. And so they just have a different culture, but still all the workers, uh, you know, all, all the mechanics, all the frontline engineers, those are local people and they all have a great love and respect for the, for the base system here. So it's been very easy to work with them. And, and I'll just say this for, you know, we're a non-regulatory program, uh, but the regulatory agencies, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, you know, when properly uh, administered, properly enforced, you know, those programs do a good job here. So it's not like mm-hmm. in the old days. It's not like the 1950s and 1960s. In fact, I, I have a personal preference for new plants, you know, best available technology requirements, super clean, you know, uh, safety protocols put in place. None of these plants are going to be perfect. Accidents still happen. Mistakes still are made. But, man, give me a new plant right. with all those controls and built-in pollution control systems. Ray, it sounds like you drive a Tesla. And, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, but I live in a place where it's not conducive to electronics. <laughs> that's, that's okay. I understand. But, but you know, it, you know the the where we are now from where we were, you know, when the Clean Water Act was passed in the 1970s and the Clean Air Act, you know, it, it's light years different, and and yet, and yet the community and the people in the community, we still have this baggage we're dealing with, you know, of mm-hmm. of. Uh, you know, what the Port of Houston was like in the 1960s and 70s and and what it was like back in those days. And that keeps everybody on their toes. It yeah. does. Yep. So, you know, but really it's a, it's a whole different era. It's not to say things are perfect. There are still impacts uh, from these operations and these plants, one of which I want to talk about, and that's fresh water, availability of fresh water. Let's let's talk about that. And freshwater inflows, of course, was, as you mentioned, was one of the uh, issues identified in the 1998 Coastal uh, Bend Bays plan. Uh, very critical to health of the estuary and the bay system, particularly oysters. What's the status of freshwater inflows? This has been an interesting topic in Texas regulatory law for a while. Uh, tell us about freshwater inflows and and the state of affairs for the base systems that you oversee? So we only really have one significant river here, that, and that's the Nueces River. And the watershed for that river is a desert. So it's it's by, na- by nature, it's a very flashy system. You know, hmm. in wet years, it'll flow, and, and it's subject to frequent droughts and dry periods where there's little or no flow at all. Hmm. So to respond to that, for civilization to develop here, if you will, you know, the, the locals uh, started building reservoirs back in the 1950s. First they were little, and, you know, Lake Corpus Christi was built in 1950s. And by the 1960s, uh, city planners had already started, you know, trying to permit uh, another reservoir within the riverine system, uh, the Choke Canyon Reservoir, yep. and uh, further up in the watershed. So what happened was we end up with these reservoirs up there that unless there's a massive flood, these reservoirs have essentially the ability to capture all but a last little bit of inflows to the bay. 
And for us, fortunately, there were some permit requirements included in the permits for the for the reservoir construction itself that uh, that provided for some, if you will, minimal inflows of fresh water to the bay and estuary itself. And um, that's been critical. It's 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 not it's not great. And what's happened is uh, all this recent industrial development. You know those plant those plants are big water users. Yep. Plastic plants, petrochemical plants, uh, uh, refineries, they all use a lot of water. And it is the limiting natural resource for our area, fresh water. So it, this, this, this community is always in a state of planning for where can we get more water. You know, you mentioned, of course, that the the Bay and Estuary Program is a non-regulatory program. None of them are. The 28 of them around the American shoreline uh, and around the United States and the Great Lakes, too. Uh, You don't have have the typical uh, toolkit for a regulatory agency to persuade uh, your stakeholders and companies and communities to act in a particular way. This is about persuasion and relationships and partnerships. Um, Ray, has the program design worked out? Do you feel like you are able to have a true impact on preserving and protecting the health of the systems that you oversee, the bay and estuary systems that you are responsible for um given the toolkit do you have does this program design function or is there something you would like to change about it 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 does function as long as you have good people at the table and and we have good people at the table here um you know in the those permits i talked about on freshwater inflows right you know they were written at a time where you know essentially there's a you know permit says there'll be this amount of water fresh water provided to the bay in an annual amount there's no monthly schedule there's no seasonal components to it so we have to go back and say look you know i know you got a permit that calls for all these hundred thousand acres or so of water to reach the bay but you know biology tells us you know here's the spawning season for white shrimp um here's the salinity levels we need for oysters um, here's the uh, uh, the time of the year that you know the the other fish are, are working in the bay system, and we need these not just the water because freshwater inflows carry nutrients and sediments. You know when you when you cut off the freshwater inflows, you're really cutting off the nutrients, and and worse with the reservoirs, you've cut off these flood events. All right, mm-hmm. our delta, our river. Through the Nueces Delta that the estuary program now owns, the river has meandered naturally to the far southern side, and it takes a flood to inundate the whole marsh complex of the Delta Egg Marsh. And and you, you can't create you can't artificially create that kind of a flood. You can't let that much water out of the reservoir to make it happen. Hmm. And they wouldn't do it anyway. Um so what we've done is gone back to them and on a voluntary basis, the city of Corpus Christi, which is the water provider here, you know, uh, agreed to put in pumping systems to move water from the main channel of the river back into the marshes of the Delta and to provide that on a, on a regular basis as a function of inflows. 
so that uh, this is the hands-on management that we're all engaged in here to make sure that waters get right where they're needed. And sometimes at the very critical moments when they are needed. And, and so the cooperation has been there. But there has to be cooperation on both sides, and you know compromises have to be made. And, and and you know if you have good people at the table, you can make that work. And I'm talking about not just the city as a water provider, but their key industrial water customers. You know? Right. So it's like it's that all goes on. It's all interplayed. It works for us. It may not work everywhere. Our system works here. Engagement is the. Uh, is the key word there. Keep them engaged, keep them coming to the table. Yeah, I was going to add something to that, Peter. I think, um, you know, you asked, I think your question was really about, you know, do you think it works and and what would you change? And and I just, I agree with Ray. I think it, it's definitely shown itself to be a, a model, you know, that, that works for, um, you know, not only Texas, but other places around the country as well. Um, and you've actually, on the Texas coast, there's there's actually other organizations that have sprung up um, in areas that aren't covered right now by national estuary programs. You know, we have the one in Galveston and we have ours, but there's, you know, lots of other places on the coast that are dealing with a lot of these same issues. And there's um, several organizations that have sprung up trying to essentially emulate this national estuary program model and, and show, because they've seen how effective it can be. And, and you know, all of them um, really focus on that partnership component and the bringing the people together, um, you know, to to highlight issues, address issues, things like that. So, just an interesting um, thing to note. You know, that's that's I think happened in the last you know 15, 15 10, 10, 15 years or so. Interesting. Um, very. P- Peter, you emphasized the non-regulatory component here. That's critical. In the nineteen nineties, when we wrote our plan, uh, the program was staffed by state agency employees, part of a regulatory agency. Uh, we got through the planning phase and the local partners, local stakeholders said, we like this. We like the plan. We want to see it implemented. Some of them were uncomfortable having the plan being administered by a regulatory agency. Mm-hmm. So uh, both the both the environmental community here and the local governments were able to reach an agreement. We should take it out of that state regulatory agency and, and create a, a nonprofit because everything was regulatory in the price of doing that. These local governments and local industries all committed funding, ongoing funding, not one-time funding. So year after year, the, the program is for implementation of the plan has received funding from our, our local counties, our local cities, our local industries and we are able to leverage up those resources. That's Kirsten's job uh, with other grants to to do some major projects in the area. I know that that's really important. And I, I think Peter, I, I know Peter's going to want to ask about funding. And Where is he? Where's Peter? We have, we have, <laughs> hold, hold on one second. We have about 10 minutes left on this show. And I, I'd okay. be remiss if we did not discuss the climate change component that made its way into addition two. Uh, and uh, we, we started, Kirsten, you mentioned that climate change was something that, that didn't appear in the first edition, and you've worked it in now. And, I, I'm of course, we're a coastal network. Climate change, uh, coastlines are on the front lines, ladies and gentlemen. We all know that. Uh, how, did, how did that work out? How, how, how was it, first of all, how did it work out from a process perspective with your stakeholders? Um, is this the first 
plan to uh, in the region to incorporate climate change, I wonder? And um, how did it manifest itself in this report? Yeah, so I, I think it was, we, we benefited greatly from the fact that, that EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, had actually um, given some some funds to the estuary program to do a climate change vulnerability assessment. Um, we actually partnered with the Nature Conservancy on that effort. And that was all happening, kind of wrapping up right when we were starting our revision of this plan. So it gave us a really good assessment to look at. Um, you know, the the plan that the assessment that they did actually had some recommendations for, you know, addressing our local climate change issues. Um, you know, but it's there, there's tons of you know resources out there about impacts from climate change, but this was obviously one that was super relevant to our region, right? You know, I mean, it focused on our program area and what we could, you know, what we were potentially going to see, and so, um, you know, that was a super helpful resource, and we could take that to the stakeholder groups and and show them the results and and the recommendations, and then see how that fit best within the within our own plan. And I'll say, like, you know, we talked about different approaches of how to how to incorporate climate change into the plan and, um, you know, should it be kind of a component of all these different things, you know, should there, should it be within the habitat chapter, should it be within the um, maritime commerce, and we actually chose to, to have it be a standalone um, component, because we felt like it was just so overarching to the whole, um, you know, to everything we do, whether it's, you know, the, like I said, the habitat and wildlife components, but up to the you know, the human use aspect and the, the communities and resilience. And, and we even actually uh, chose to call it coastal resilience because we really think that's more of the focus, you know, is um, is making our, our community and our coastline more resilient to climate change. And so, um, you know, and, and so that, you know, I think, like I said, we had some things line up well, I think, at, at the right times to help us understand and, and be able to incorporate that that into the plan. Yeah, I think it's got to be one of the more interesting uh, conversations around the American shoreline on climate has got to be in, in the Corpus Christi region because of the deep connection between the region and hydrocarbon-based energy systems, which are believed to be, of course, the significant contributing factor among many, but one of the significant contributing factors to climate change. Um, one of the things that is also maybe not widely known uh, uh, in our audience around the country is the amount of wind power in this part of the Texas coast uh, on onshore wind. And Ray, in all my travels up and down the Texas coast from Austin down to South Padre, you know, taking that turn at Corpus Christi, I have been amazed at the growth of wind power in the region. Can you talk a little bit about that component at sort of an offset of climate interest, but what's the relationship uh, with the, the wind power industry folks and uh, has it been a positive, is it received as a positive development uh, in the region by, by the community? Well, <clears throat> I think we've had minimal, if any, direct contact here at the estuary program with the wind power companies. Okay. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's not the best. And it's not where I want it to be. Uh, you know, these are facilities, they put up wind towers and they're not manned. So there's right. not like a lot of people involved, mm -mm. except during the construction phase. Uh, so there's siding issues. You want to be away from the water so that you don't get these, uh, you know, these coastal birds. You minimize the impact there. The uh, wind turbine uh, folks have 
tried to stay away from the Aransas National Wildlife Refuge where the whooping cranes are. Yep. That would be bad for business, right? Very bad. Uh, but we do have these powerful winds here year in and year out, and it's been a real moneymaker for them. And, and of course, you throw in all the tax incentives and everything else that goes along with that. Uh, so there are more wind turbines here than I ever dreamed of. <laughs> it is surprising. I, and, I'm stunned when I drive by and I'm like, wow, every time it, there's more absolutely. every time I come by. They just keep they just keep putting them up as long as the uh, tax incentives are there, and the idea is you know it just feeds into the grid. Uh, even though you can go to companies and buy you know renewable energy, you know the truth is a, an electron is an electron, right. and and once it gets in the wires, you can't tell what you're buying. But uh, um, so no, uh, uh, you know we've had concerns about uh, primarily bird strikes. Uh, impacts on migrating uh, populations, uh, impacts on uh, nesting areas here. And uh, uh, one one of the aspects of the coastal bend here in these wide coastal plains is that there's an awful lot of farm fields around, uh, cotton, sorghum, grains. And the idea is uh, they're putting these wind turbines mostly in those already mm-hmm. uh, disturbed areas, if you will. So they're not like putting them in in parks and nature areas they're they fit nicely into a uh, farm do. field and the footprint is pretty minimal and the landowners uh, then uh, generate quite a bit of uh, income from leasing or selling that property yeah to the uh, wind turbine companies it's surprising to see because uh, and and you can you know uh, you can drive up to these things in certain parts of the texas coast these are onshore of course and like you say, they'll be they'll be sitting in the middle of a field that is being cultivated, and the the crop lines come very close to the base of these things. They're they're compatible with farming and ranching, and uh, I know in the farming and ranching communities in Texas where this development has occurred, uh, they're excited about the checks they get every month from from the lease fees and, and royalties off of this power production. Uh, so it's been an interesting thing. Uh, many people might not know Texas is the number one wind powering wind power producing state in America, and and it is all onshore at this point. Uh, it is fascinating. Ray, I wanted to um, when you you've just finished the update and under Kirsten's uh, direction and leadership, uh, and uh, could you give our audience a sense of the challenges ahead, Kirsten? You, I'd like you to speak to this as well. When you're looking ahead, uh, making these coastal areas that are that we demand so much from as 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 human beings, we want them to be natural areas. We want them to be wonderful recreation spaces. We want it to supply commercial fish and shellfish. We want it to be energy production. We want it to be a waterway and a highway. I mean, we ask a lot of our coastal areas. Uh, when you're looking down the road, Ray, what is what concerns you or what are the challenges ahead that uh, maybe keep you up every once in a while thinking about what's coming your direction? Sure. We, we already talked about freshwater availability and freshwater inflow, so I'm not going to uh, dwell on that anymore. I would tell you the sheer number of people that are coming to recreate here to go for, uh, sport fishing in the bay. You know, you know it's, uh, it's one massive uh, boat storage facility after another uh, dry docks, uh, 
you know, the number of people in and our friends at Texas Parks and Wildlife who do a marvelous job of managing the fisheries and making sure that, you know, there's a great monitoring plan in place and they can tell how the fish populations are doing, you know, you know, they can see year to year, every time, whenever the fishing pressure goes up, they can see a decline in the population. You know, they have saltwater hatcheries where they can restock the ocean, restock the bays with fish. You know, you know, the question is how much more can we handle? How much more, how many more boats can we have out there before the visitors experience is is uh, affected we already have people complaining that you know i was on a drift for uh you know catching speckled trout and somebody cut me off you know you know running full full throttle through my fishing area there are no quiet backwaters anymore okay. there are people there are people everywhere the boat ramps it's hard to build enough boat ramps not that the ramps are critical. It's the parking, you know, for your truck and your trailer. Yeah, you know, space is uh, space is limited. Uh, so this pressure on the coast here uh, is is really one not just here in our area, but all throughout the Texas coast that I'm most familiar with, and it, it's just a an ever increasing demand. And and then you start talking about other issues like non-point source pollution. You know, as the population grows, and you know, if you want examples of that, you look up to the Galveston Bay Estuary Program, where where the city of Houston is sitting at the top of the bay. Yeah, that's tough. And, and, and you and you have all that runoff every time it rains, and and here it doesn't rain very often, but when it does, you can get a lot of a non-point source uh, loading into the bay systems. And what does that do? And how does that affect the health? And are the fish still edible? And so, so yeah, it's a uh, uh, the pressures continue. Uh, the industrial discharges continue to grow. Uh, the new plants are coming online. The existing plants are expanding. Uh, it's just a real challenge from my perspective. And, and Kirsten may have something to add to that. Yeah, Kirsten, let me give you the final word. When you uh, completed the planning process, uh, what do you think are the major challenges uh, coming uh, your way as an organization? So I'll say, I, I think... Ray hit on a lot of them that I that I would have said as well, but I, I will add to that. Um, I think the more extreme climate events are what probably, you know, when you talk about what keeps me up at night, <laughs> that would definitely be um, at the forefront. You know, we all, um, you know, I've I've been in the coastal bend region for a long time, but, you know, Hurricane Harvey was really the first, um, obviously, major storm that I had had to, to deal with. And, you know, I, I actually just finished uh, repairing our, our home from that process. You know, it took us you know, almost almost four years to finish that. And, you know, not just the, the impacts that has on the, the built environment, but the, the the habitats and the wildlife as well. So, you know, and then we just recently, obviously all here in Texas experienced this extreme freeze event, you know, that had a major impact on our, um, our fisheries, our, um, you know, some of our, our bird populations even. And, and so it's, uh, you know, I think we're gonna see more and more of that. You know, last summer we, we, we had a, you know, several storms that, that, you know, gave us, you know, definitely had some impacts, but maybe not as extreme as we lucked out, you know, not to have some mm-hmm. of the more extreme 
impacts like we did with Harvey, but you know, they're just becoming more and more common. And so I think, you know, for me, that's definitely one of those. I think we have to continue to, to as much as we can focus on that, that resiliency aspect, um, you know, for both our, our built environment and our, um, you know, the natural environment here on the coast. So. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, um, fair to say uh, that these estuary programs around the country uh, serve a really critical role in knitting together the community and the stakeholders to take on the serious questions and issues on the American shoreline. Uh, Ray, you guys do an incredible job there. I know you've been there for 20 plus years now and hope that you can keep going because uh, it's expertise and relationships that make these organizations function and uh, so it was a real pleasure to uh, to learn about the Bay and Estuary program today I want to thank you both for for being on the show thanks for helping us tell us thank you yeah it was uh, great to visit with you look forward to doing it again someday we'd love to have you back ladies and gentlemen it is ray allen the executive director of the coastal bend bay and estuaries program and his colleague kirsten stanzel the director of partnerships for the bay program as well coming from corpus christi texas one of my favorite parts of the american shoreline we really thank you for being on the american shoreline podcast and sharing your work with our audience Beaches and sail to Bender Hotels, my father's and mine was you.